Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of Profit and Loss. Um, this week on the show, I'm going to be joined by Jay Moore, founder and CEO of FX Hedgepool, to talk peer-to-peer matching, one of my um, favourite themes over the years, I suggest. Um, and then by Rob Loft, founder and CEO of Harvey Loft, performance consultants, um, to talk over the latest FX turnover data from the world's FX committees. Um, before we do that, we're going to look at um, this was the week that was. Um, a few of the news stories that went through um, the wires and across the pages of P&L this week. I guess we start off with um, the Investment Association calling for standardised rejects of FX trades. Um, it looks a very, very sensible solution to me, I have to say. Um, the more people can understand why they were rejected, uh, the better it would be. The only thing that did surprised me a little bit. There's a couple of things in there that were strange. Um, there was one that was saying one of the uh, reject messages was unsupported um, product, which does make me wonder why would somebody be streaming a price if they actually don't support the product? I mean, that would be the ultimate in last look. And now Galen's gone. I can talk about last look all I like, um, which is great for me, not so much for you. Um, so I, a few things around that. I, I, I get they want the messages, but it strikes me that they could probably um, look to narrow down the 13 categories again, and that would probably make life even easier. Um, credit, absolutely understand. Um, stale price, yep. Um, if it's a technology issue beyond the LP's control. Market move, well, we're back onto one of my old problems here. Why make the price if you don't want to stand behind it? Um and then there was another category which was exceptional, which basically is um, if there's a reject for no other reason than the one above, the ones above, which again kind of defeats the object for me. I think um, you know, are we just going to get the exceptional tag on on more and more rejects? Um, we'll have to wait and see. Overall, though, a good initiative, and you know, the investment association have come out against last look. You do kind of wonder why asset managers do get last look, I have to say. Um, but, yeah, we should see how the feedback from the LPs of the world go from there. Elsewhere, we saw platform number, the platforms released their FX um, turnover data. They were up month on month, as I think you know, everyone expects them to be. It was December last month, after all. Year on year, they were down, which is not great news. But I would say that maybe the... Um, Declines weren't uniformly as bad as they could have been, given the doom and gloom out there about um, FX volatility and FX turnover. So a reasonable month for the platforms. They've, they've got a kickstart. I think the problem we have now is that um, we live in a world where you know we have brief periods of volatility. That's not great for platforms. They could do just a steady stream of, of income. Um, my last point on... Um, the news this week is an interesting one. It's a firm called AIX. So obviously they're getting the AI buzzword in there. Um, and it is, I have to say, it was a press release of, full of buzzwords. But it's launched what it claims to be the f- world's first natural language artificial intelligence broker platform. Um, and it's going to facilitate automated peer-to-peer trading in institutional OTC markets. Now, um, he obviously wants to transform. That's another buzzword for those of you playing buzzword bingo here. It aims to transform OTC markets through its AI-driven 
another buzzword, negotiation and matching engine executed through the uh, AIX chatbot, which it says enables instant access to liquidity, immediate price discovery, best execution, and automatic settlement whilst ensuring anonymity. If someone didn't get a house on that, I don't know, you know you're playing the wrong game. Um, it's facilitated through natural language processing and cognitive reasoning. And it serves the role of the human voice broker. And this is actually a quote. It serves the role of a human voice broker, but uses technology that allows it to process thousands of orders accurately at a fraction of the cost for the end user. It is here I call upon the listeners to try and explain to me in a simpler fashion as possible, of course, um, is this not just a trading platform? Is this not just a, an ECN or a multi-dealer platform? Um, well, they've stuck the word AI and chatbots and stuff in front of it because it strikes me that, yeah, what is a trading platform? What is an ECN? An ECN is an electronic form, a fully automated peer-to-peer trading form of you know, what the voice brokers used to do. So, um, yeah, answers on the postcard to the usual address, please, on that one because it's beyond me. Um, and then I guess just one other thing I'd wanted to follow up on some feedback from last week's podcast uh, around the sterling spike. Um, I think there was a few people vaguely amused. The odd one was appalled by my uh, comment that somebody may have been a little naughty. Um, the general consensus of the feedback was that because spreads didn't blow out, then this shows this was probably orderly as such, and therefore nothing would be found that was uh, wrong in the trading. Um, I fully accept that. Spreads didn't blow out, and it was a bid placed on a public venue. However, I do think we need to still be asking questions because the FX Global Code says um, quite a bit about disruptive trading and handling disruptive orders. I still think we need to find out who did this. It it doesn't have to be identified to the public, obviously, proprietary information, but I think the regulator needs to look at this and at least ask the question of the firm that put the bid in, why did you choose to trade at that moment in time? Because 15 seconds before the data is not the best time to be looking at the trade. I'm not convinced they would have got best execution for themselves. I'm not convinced it would have done the, it's done the market any good whatsoever. So, yes, there may be nothing going on there. And I would point out that, yet again, whoever has dealt just in front of the numbers has got it right, which is a remarkable pattern. If you look back over the history of these things, um, you know, spreads have blown out, but people have generally got the decision right, which I think is uh, should be a, something of concern. There is a 50-50 chance in this, after all. Um, so maybe we need to just look at it and ask those questions. So that's what we observe from this week's um, news around here, the interesting stuff. And um, let's move on to our first guest. I'm joined by uh, Jay Morse, founder and CEO of FX Hedgepool, which launched uh, this week or last week when people listen to this podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jay. Um, Thanks, Colin. Interesting, yeah, interesting one for me because um, as a well-known skeptic of, of peer-to-peer matching, the minute I, hear, I read or hear peer-to-peer matching, I, you know, I, can, I can feel the hackles rising. Um, yeah, you know, my problems have always been the same around liquidity in in spot. Um, does an asset manager really want to wait for um, a match in what is effectively an administration trade for them? Now, as I understand it, FX hedge pool is going to be a little different. So, why is this going to be different to the other peer to peer matching things that uh, you know, uh, initiatives that we hear about? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting, and and um, you know, I was actually looking forward to this conversation because you are such a skeptic, and uh, and to be <laughs> honest with you, I, I'm I'm you know, I follow your arguments, and I actually I think I'm quite a skeptic myself, um, particularly for peer to peer for spot, right? Because yeah. you know, as you point out. You know, spot trading tends to be a reaction to something else that's happened in your portfolio. Uh, you know, you bought it in international equity, international bond. Therefore, you need to fund it. And, you know, the, the longer you wait, the more risk you introduce. Um, although the longer you wait, the more likely it is you'll get a, uh, a match from a, a peer. Um, but is that risk worth it? And, and what are you really gaining from that? Especially, um, you know, I think the biggest challenge with spot peer-to-peer is that, you know, there's really no predictability. And, you know, if you do get a hit today, um, that tells you absolutely nothing about your likelihood of getting hit tomorrow or the day after. So every day is yeah. kind of a fresh start. And, you know, even if you can get over the long run decent hit rates, it just doesn't become a dependable part of your liquidity and your workflow and things like that. And so it is a challenge. I mean, I think it's, it's a market behavior challenge. It's not a product challenge, personally. Um, yeah, no, I... I I get that. I mean, because I think obviously, I mean, I, I always argue, look at the WM fix and the slippage we see in that. Um, so why is FX Hedgepool different? So, I mean, when, when we came about, I mean, when you and I were catching up before the podcast, I mean, you mentioned you've been talking about peer or peer to peer or hearing about peer to peer for 15 years. Um, personally, I've been, you know, hearing about it at conferences for probably the last five to seven, if not longer. I mean, it's been around for a long time. People have been trying to solve yeah. this. And, and I think the one area that people have uh, failed to look at is um, swaps. Yep. And, you know, partly because, you know, it's, it's more complicated and, you know, spot just seems like a more natural um, where the volume is. You see a lot of back and forth. Um, it's more of a high frequency um, type of trade. Um, but in the, in the swap space and, you know, particularly given my background, I mean, I've been dealing um, in passive hedging programs for 20 plus years. And so, you know, they're very programmatic. These aren't fast paced. These are slow and very well planned out trading activities. And so in the swap space, um, as it relates to uh, passive hedging programs uh, and these mandated rules based hedging programs that, you know, giants like Vanguard and BlackRock and, you know, you name it, there's an SSGA, uh, tons of managers across the world uh, are mandated to run passive hedging programs and 90% more or more or using one month forwards. So, yeah. you know, what we're doing is saying that that gives the ability to, set, to have a much more curated um, process for who is participating in this community, um, you know, who should be, you know, considered uh, appropriate for this community. Uh, and it allows us, you know, it, it provides us some information about who we should be talking to next, um, given who's already in that community. So, you know, for us, it's very much a matter of creating now a predictable and repeatable and sustainable source of liquidity uh, but through peer-to-peer. And that's where the passive hedging world uh, is much different than what's ever been looked at. Okay. Um, as it happens, we, we found more common ground there because I, I totally accept the, um, the need for it or, or the benefits, potential benefits of it in, um, in, in swaps. How do you deal then with the credit component of this? Because obviously you've got, you know, there's a lot of work into credit lines. It's it's one of the traditional um, functions of the banking industry. How do you deal with a peer-to-peer credit issue in swaps, especially? Yeah, I mean that's uh, obviously. I mean the benefits to the to the the buy side, if you will, of peer-to-peer 
um, you know, is obvious. And, you know, the, 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 I was, as I just described, I mean, the ability to actually create a sustainable source of, uh, of matching uh, in the swap state mm. space is, is there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, a buy side firm cannot settle directly against the, you know, a peer or a peer's range yeah. of funds for that matter, uh, even more complex. So, you know, how do yeah. you so, how do you solve for the credit side of things? And, and as you may have read, the, um, you know, the, the FX hedge pool solution that we went live with uh, is using Standard Charter Bank as kind of the first of uh, what we hope to be a number of credit uh, providers to the panel. So um, what they what they're doing effectively is, you know, using existing uh, bilateral trading relationships with the members of FX hedge pool where, you know, there are lines established, there are ISDAs in place, there are um, accounts set up and so forth. So we're really just leveraging uh, those existing, um, in, that, in, that existing infrastructure and, you know, allowing the liquidity and the pricing to be um, basically carved out or disentangled from the credit side of things. And so, um, you know, we're speaking to, again, I mean, Standard Charter is the first, um, they're, they've been a great partner to us so far and very innovative in, in helping us develop this. But, you know, they've known and we've known and certainly the members have known that that, that, that is not a sustainable, um, you know, single bank model is not sustainable for scale. So, yeah. you know, naturally, we're speaking with other banks to join this this panel of credit um, providers so that, you know, if, you know, a member has. 10 or 20 yards, you know, to, to allocate or, or that is matched on FX hedge pool, they can allocate that according to, you know, internal credit monitoring or management uh, policies to uh, a number of different banks that are participating on FX hedge pool. So obviously the benefit to the member is credit diversification and having control like they would expect um, in their current trading models. Uh, yeah. around their credit management. Um, but the obvious question that always comes up is, well, why would a bank want to do this? And I have to say, we've been really pleasantly surprised about how much support and excitement we've been getting from the banks um, because of the type of flow we're focused on. The feedback we yeah. get is that, you know, swaps are not the most attractive business for the banks when it comes to dealing with these monthly rolls. They know they're happening no. every month. They know they need to be there. They know they've got massive credit uh, available for these uh, buy side partners, but it's, you know, they're, they're in competition for what's already considered to be the, the tightest margin trades. And so, you know, they're kind of every month hoping to, to win a piece of that business. Um, and in order to win a piece of the business, they have to be so razor sharp in their pricing that they've usually, um, you know, not making enough margin to cover their balance sheet costs. Mm. So, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at you know, one month pricing to a lot of customers, they're probably getting choice if they got a mm -hmm. panel of banks on there. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I I guess that's probably a massive selling point for them. It's suddenly, so is this effectively making it a fee type business rather than a a, a margin business? Yeah, exactly. And I think you know. Profit margins, yeah. Exactly. And, and it's, I think it's very timely because the banks that we're speaking to, uh, you know, on more than one occasion have sort of raised to us that, you know, this is a time where a lot of trading desks and a lot of, you know, management teams are saying, you know, how do we move away from volatile, you know, being so dependent on volatility in the market and having our trading revenues drive our profitability? 
can we get more towards a fee-based service type model where we use our balance sheet in a way that generates revenue consistently? We're pro- providing value to our customers. Um, so, you know, the idea of stepping in as a credit intermediary among a relatively small and select panel uh, that's participating with us uh, ensures that they're going to get, uh, a, you know, a, a, a sizable piece of the flow every month. Uh, without having to price it uh, and get paid on that month after month um, while being in control uh, of knowing what their revenues are going to be uh, around balance sheet costs and, and, and you know, their capital requirements or return on capital requirements. So, and again, yeah, I there's, guess there's been a lot of positive feedback. Yeah. I was like, again, it strikes me that, again, this would work in the swap space where it doesn't work in the spot. Yeah. Because I think there's, you know, there's a problem, you know, everyone can say, okay, I want to be a broker, but there's, yeah, there's there's not actually that much room for many brokers when it comes to um, to FX business nowadays because you know competition just squeezes brokerage you know drier and drier, and in the right. spot space you end up with people not taking risk. Whereas what we're talking about here is not something we actually we actually don't need risk takers per se in this, do we? Because this is a I guess a mechanical function. It's an administration of, of flow. Exactly, and you know the buy side is it's, I mean it's kind of a it's circular and the problem's circular, right? I mean, the buy side wants to get good pricing on this. The sell side knows they're coming and they know they need to provide good pricing on these trades, yeah. but they also need to hedge out of that risk. And so, you know, the fact that they know month end is going to be when uh, a lot of these trading uh, or, or trades occur. Uh, and they know that they're, they're going to get some of it because there's, you know, only so much to go around um, and, or so many banks available to the, to the buy side. Um, you know, that introduces risks like market impact and it's not, it's just a hard thing to avoid. So, you know, the buy side, they're saying, look, there's bid offer spread is one point. I mean, I, you know, when, when I started this, it was more about, you know, how can we introduce a way that's going to reduce costs for the buy side around their monthly roles? Um, and, you know, I think it pretty quickly became obvious that it wasn't a pricing story. I mean, it, it is for some, but it's not a pricing yeah. story for all. Uh, I think more, the bigger you get, the better your pricing is, right? And therefore, it becomes less about price and more about market impact. Uh, the smaller you are, the less leverage you have, and, and it becomes more about price. You know, the, using Hedgepool can just be a massive savings for you. But not, you know, in other cases, it's really about, well, how do we avoid market impact by trading with our peers exclusively? Um, you know, how do we get better aligned with our benchmarks? Uh, if I'm, you know, tracking an index and I have a very specific point in time that I'm getting measured against, but it's going to take me a, a number of days to get my order full, uh, filled in, in full. Um, that even if I get good prices at choice two days before my benchmark, there's market risk and slippage from the benchmark. And then, you know, the, the other one that everyone you know keeps raising is that you know this takes so much time and so much effort and resource, both on the sell side and buy side. That uh, for what? And this is passive flow. It's not value add. It's not alpha generating flow. It's just it, it's taking up. A disproportionate amount, a disproportionate amount of time and resources to get done, and so that mm. everybody sort of sees the value in sort of getting this off their plate, making it clear and measurable in terms of what the costs are, um, and, and and hopefully we can grow from there. So, what's I mean, I guess people are going to price this you know, off a benchmark. They can get, they can get a match at any or a high probability of a match at any time. Is how I understand process works and you do one matching sort of session i guess for month end for the role 
Yeah, I mean, the key for us is making sure that everybody who's participating is aligning to a single set of dates, right? So if month end is the yeah. trade date, um, that has to be the trade date with the same, you know, near date and far date settlements for making sure that everything is matched off and flat to the counterparties. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, to be honest with you, it's really, that's not a really big ask um, of the buy side, no. especially when it comes to, you know, these funds, well, index funds are clearly already there. Um, other funds, this isn't purely about portfolios that are being hedged because, you know, it's an international fund. In many cases, the types of hedges that we're sort of, um, that we see as part of this program are what we call share class hedging. So you might have a U.S. manager who's distributing their funds into Europe via a Luxembourg or USIT or, uh, or, um, Irish based usage product. And therefore, yeah. if they're selling to European investors, they sell it on a fully hedged basis. So, you know, those fill the requirements of being part of, you know, a rules-based passive hedging program. And those funds are available on a uh, on a daily liquidity cycle anyway. So whether they trade on the 15th of the month, the 26th or the 30th, it doesn't matter to them really. So, you know, no. getting in line where the liquidity is for the peers um, is, is has been a pretty easy ask. Um, and then, you know, from that, it's really that's the single trade date. And then, you know, uh, the the members are are, are um, given access to the, the actual um, utility, the platform. Well, the, the utility is technology solution, um, where they yeah. can you know basically indicate their interest, and we provide them an estimate of what the matching is for the upcoming role, even if it's two, three you know weeks away. Mm. And then that's something. So, that, you know. go ahead. So basically, then we don't the the actual price. This has got nothing to do with the price in the market. So obviously we saw, you know, we always think month end and we think funding issues. You know, there was a paper recently on um, from the BIS talking about um, the spillover from swaps markets to spot markets and vice versa when it comes to month end pricing because of liquidity shortages. And we saw the repo blow out at the end of September and, and a few other days in, in October. This sounds to me as though that doesn't actually matter. I mean, that's that's something for the asset manager to worry about whether they want to do this a month end. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the month that, end date itself matters, right? I mean, the turn, for example, yeah. right, at year end. I mean, you, you're going to see that, yeah. that. You can't avoid it. You're going to start seeing that reflected in pricing on any forward that you do that goes over the date, right? So yeah, um, it, it's really, the market's tried to figure out ways to sort of avoid that and cheapen the price of liquidity and, or, or the tri- price of funding. Uh, for years. And, you know, there, there might be, you know, some tricks that, I, that I'm not aware of, but, you know, for the most part, it seems to be kind of this unavoidable thing. Um, yeah. And again, I mean, the index trackers, they're really focused on where the liquidity is. I mean, a good example, I mean, year end, you know, with the holidays and vacations and, you know, people tend to stop trading, you know, before the 20th of, the, of December. Uh, and that's, you know, 10 days ahead, but it's just because there's no liquidity left. But if everybody was on the same cycle and it was December 31st and, um, you know, liquidity was not really an issue because you were you were matched off against your peers, then, you know, and that gets you closer to your benchmark. then that's, you know, that's a win. Yeah. So I guess one sort of final thing on, on sort of the functioning area for me. So obviously we, we're talking a lot about passive investors, we're talking a lot about programs and systematic hedging. Um we see, you know, every month there's another report that passive hedging uh, investment funds are just going through the roof in terms of the size of the funds. Right. Is your biggest challenge going to be actually getting those people on the other side of the trade? 
because you know obviously in spot we we've, we've already discussed it you know you look at it and go well if everyone if if 60 percent of the people are the same way there's going to be a market move and you're not going to get you're not going to get matched off yeah it's your challenge in getting these firms and how easy is it to find these firms that actually have the offsetting flows um i mean that's the beauty of it right is that a lot of this data is public um oh, okay you, you know i you can you can find out morningstar's got data on every fund listed in luxembourg or I, you know, ireland and uk and the us whether yeah. they're hedged whether they're not hedged whether they're what currencies uh you know are exposed um so you know i mean that's that's more of a scientific way to do it but just generally speaking i mean there we know that australian pension plans canadian pension plans i mean they're major hedgers japanese pension plans uh, yeah. or, or sort of sovereign wealth major hedgers um, in the U.S., we have giant ETFs that are indexed to, you know, international ETFs that are indexed uh, on a hedged basis. You have the same thing in Europe. You have the share class hedging, um, you know, distribution, as I mentioned, where uh, U.S. managers are, are, you know, for their European investors hedging that translation. Um, so there, I mean, there is a monstrous amount of uh, matching potential in the forward in the hedging space. Um, yeah. Uh, globally. So finally, Jay, what's the ambitions for FX Hedge Pool? I mean, obviously, very early days. Um, we can leave the world domination to a later call. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but in, I mean, in terms of, of Hedge Pool, I mean, are you looking at this as, as something you, you've seen a specific issue and you can solve to this? Or do you see opportunities to scale the business beyond this, this one service? You know, it's a good question. I mean, part of part of me when I when we sort of started this whole thing was, you know, looking at the landscape now and how I think, you know, the buy side is, you know, they're, they're kind of they're highly, highly and highly focused on the things that they need to do really well for their investors, which is manage portfolios and get good rates on their executions and all, all of that. So it's very yeah. hard to sort of imagine a buy side um, firm being able to do something like this. Uh, and it's also yeah. hard to imagine, you know, a, a sell side firm wanting to do something like this. Um, and even if they did, it's hard to sort of imagine the buy side uh, fully trusting something like this if, yeah. if it wasn't coming from an independent source. So for us, you know, our, our, our motivation was really to create something that was inspired by the buy side and that was something for mm -hmm. them that they can continue to influence um, as time progresses. And, you know, we've, we've, um, so many of the things that we've um, built into FX Hedge Pool uh, is really based on conversations we've had with the buy side. That and said, look, I, we we have no conflict of interest here. We, all all we are incentivized to do is build the best product for them, with no other yeah. um, you know interests to, to to consider. So you know, for us, the ambitions are to continue down that track and to give them mm. something and and to give them a platform that you know they can continue to uh confide in and ask you know we, we want to learn from each other we want to build stuff for them uh and this is yeah. you know this is the the first of of hopefully many um types of things here and hopefully we can even obviously our ambition is to see you know hedge pool grow uh significantly and yeah. um, bring in new banks to support the credit needs of the members and have enough members that we're going to need more banks so um you know just keep going uh, in, in that regard uh, but keep listening. That's what we want to do. We want to keep listening to the buy side and uh, mm. and hopefully keep continue to add value. Great. Jay, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you again, Colin.
Did you know that if you sign up before February 14, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on our regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. Last week saw the release of the FX Committee semi-annual um, FX turnover surveys. Um, just some sort of high-level you know, data here. Um, the UK and Canada hit new highs. The UK very, very fractionally. Japan and Singapore were their second highest. Um, the UK market spot NDFs and options volume were down. FX swaps and outrights volumes were up. And this, these were all reports of paradoxes, it has to be said. You know, U.S. spot was up from April, but down 21% year on year. Um, whereas NDFs and outrights were up from April and also down year on year. FX swaps were down from April and up year on year. So make of what, that what you will. Um, Singapore and Hong Kong were both down from April and up year on year. So, you know, generally speaking, they'll be happy with that. The big thing with Singapore, I think, was that um, currency swaps made the data look a lot better than it actually was. And these are not necessarily um, you know, high-profile products here. Um, Hong Kong was down in spot on FX options. Japan actually saw spot activity rises outright. Um, swaps activity was very strong there as well. Um, Australia was the strongest in terms of average daily turnover since October 2014. And as noted, Canada was the strongest ever, and it was strongest by some 18% on its previous high. So there's plenty there to sort of get our teeth into. So joining me for this segment is um, Rob Loft, who's founder and CEO of Harvey Loft, their performance consultants in um, the FX world. Um, Rob, was previous, Rob, you were previously um, head of products for EFX at RPS, Stroke NatWest Markets. Um, you've had a chance to look at the data. The thing that struck me about it, I guess, was you know, E-ratios are very, very stable. What's your takeaway from the data? Uh, yeah, thanks, Colin. So um, takeaway from the data, obviously, uh, I mean, spot, um, mildly disappointing, but, but not really too surprising. Um, it sort of follows uh, what's turning into kind of more of a, a, a long-term <clears throat> trend on the, on, on the low volumes there, positive on the on the swap volumes from an e-trading perspective, um, looks like we're pretty steady uh, on the percentage of, of e-trading. Um, in London, for example, uh, we're sticking around the kind of um, 64, 65% ratio. Uh, I guess the question would be, how do we continue to increase the, the, the e-trading ratio now that we've plucked off um in certainly in if we think about the the, the major players in in g10 for example we've plucked off the low-hanging fruit so um a lot of the 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 flow and products that are generally fairly easy to electronify um have been done certainly by the, the the top tier banks um and i guess really that means that uh, if we keep an eye on the sort of mid to lower tier banks, um, a lot of these guys are starting to, to, to beef up their tech. There's plenty of vendor solutions out there that they can use. So they're slowly catching up on that curve, but that will only 
um, accelerators as, as technology becomes cheaper and people um, adopt it more. So that can potentially um, bump up those those e volumes. Um, and we've got other products like NDFs um, that are maturing more electronically. Uh, I think there was you know chat about NDFs for for a number of years and it never really got going for for a number of reasons. Um, I think MIFID didn't particularly help because it diverted a lot of resource um, both on the business side and technology side that would have been working um, to get that going. Now that's kind of out of the way. I think people are having much more of a push um, from from people I speak to um, within the kind of financial institutions. They're, they're having more of a push at electronifying uh, the NDFs and, and, and forwards. And that's um, an interesting one, isn't it? Because if you look at it, you... You know, people have associated electronification with um, reduced margins on revenues. And it is actually the sort of providers that are looking to build. I, do you think it's a question they're looking at it saying actually the efficiency gains we'll get from electronic trading and greater automation outweigh the reduction in, in um, margin from the, from the actual trades? I think so. I do think so. I think if we're looking at the kind of, I hate to say the phrase direction of travel for the banks. It is just the continuation of a cost cutting exercise um, yeah. and, and people reduction at the end of the day. So they continue to look at high touch business and see where they can gain those efficiencies. And I'm not really sure. You would like to think that somebody is sitting there with a spreadsheet saying, well, if we move this from voice to E, this is the potential margin reduction that we'll get, but have a look at that versus the cost efficiency we'll get from less bodies on the ground. I'm not entirely sure it always works that way. <laughs> I think really, I can tell you, I'm entirely sure it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, you know, get the axe out, and then uh, yeah. probably like in five years' time, uh, people realise that you know, oops, we didn't realise that the margins had reduced like that. Um, and you can't really turn back time. So, yeah, I, I just think the trend is really efficiency. Um, the sales job is changing um, and will continue to change. So people's roles need to change. It's kind of if you're on a voice trading desk um, or on a on a sales trading desk, it's kind of you need to evolve. You need to be getting up to speed with looking at data, etc. Your role is changing more into that kind of liquidity management um, type role um, and the people mm. that get with that program um, kind of become extinct, right, unfortunately. Yeah. I, it's an interesting one, though, to me because, I mean, I, I was sort of looking at some of the numbers from the last – just the last three years because the, the way the surveys are reported have changed over the years several times, much to a lot of people's frustrations. That'll be me if they're listening. Um, but the sort of share of the single dealer platform market in the UK, which you know, the UK is comfortably the biggest FX centre in the world. I think everyone knows that. Um, but the share of the single dealer platforms has actually risen fairly well over that three-year period. I mean, the, la the latest survey, um, we'll get into this in a minute, I think, around the data, but it shows like a 19-plus percent share for SDPs. 
the average over that period has been sort of 14 to 15 percent, probably nearer 15 percent. Three years ago, it was under 14. So there's there's a push there. They they seem to be picking up more flow there. Mm. What worries me is how they is how they're handling it from a risk point of view. Because I, I can't look at it, and everyone's looking at the next three seconds. Um, it's kind of creating the hot potato trading style that the BIS spoke about in one of their reports about, I think it was three years ago, maybe six years ago. Um, mm. What worries me is that it kind of produces a house of cards. Yeah. You know, if you haven't got people on the ground, as you're talking about, taking risk, or, or should I say managing it effectively. Are you worried yeah. about the fact you know, that? I So... So yes, uh, and you know this is something we talked about um, pretty extensively. Certainly when I was when I was um, back in my role uh, at, at NatWest, um, and, and sort of one interesting thing, you kind of got I would say risk managers rather than traders these days on the on the e desk, yeah. and, and the difference I'm kind of pulling out there is really. As you say, very short-term time horizons. Very, you know, make sure pretty much you're managing down that risk to net there or thereabouts, net zero, um, and just keep yourself flat rather than people actually using trading experience, sitting on positions. You know, the, the e-trading systems, generally speaking, aren't really geared up for that. And actually, a lot of the people sitting on the e-trading desks, maybe apart from some of the the odd senior person that's still hanging around with a bit of voice experience, like 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 my old boss. Um, yeah, they're not really uh, experienced in in being able to hold that risk over time. Right, I actually think it's yeah. something that needs to happen, and I think that as e trading systems mature and as people employ less more intelligent trading strategies. I'm hoping that the, 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 the e-trading system, certainly in the, the top echelon of the, of the banks um, and financial institutions, will start to be geared up to hold that risk a little bit more. The big one for me yeah. was, you know, thinking back to, to SMB, and, and we all know it was kind of a, a perfect storm, right, especially the, the, mm. the people that, generally speaking, would have sat there and said, look, time out. Uh, a parity mine. Um, yeah. E-trading systems don't have that concept, um, and they certainly no. didn't have that concept at the time. It's 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 all about right. What controls have you got in place? Circuit break out of it, um, and then you kind of get these big sharp moves, flash crashes, whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a question of expectations, isn't it? I mean, you look at it and go, well, actually, you know, on SMB day. When it's a parity, you know, you should be thinking exactly how far did the SMB want this to go? Yeah. The answer was probably 110. Yeah. Um, and it's the same, I think, the other thing that I found interesting, what you, you just triggered in me there with your comments there, was the um, the flash move we had in um, the first day of the year last year, January the 3rd, I think it was, in Yen, when mm. you know, Aussie yen dropped about 400 points, you know, dollar yen was down about 400 points at one stage, yeah, and there was all going on. And it was called, you know, most of the reports say oh, it was caused by retail. And I kind of look at it and think, well, yeah, the e-systems are not managing, they're looking at maybe number of trades and volume, because you're looking at, generally speaking, you're looking at uninformed traders, most of them on the carry, 
and they're bailing out. That kind of tells me that, you know, we analyse our flow maybe in the wrong way because we're analysing our flow, you know, T plus, you know, 25 milliseconds, T plus 100 milliseconds, T plus 1 second, T plus 5 seconds, maybe T plus 20 seconds. Nobody thinks about analysing it T plus 5 minutes. Yeah. Which I think is what, what the, the sort of trader, the sort of risk manager you're talking about that you know, kind of used to exist would generally do. I mean, is it possible to get the e-systems looking, it's just data, isn't it, looking at that T plus 5? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say so. So, um, mm. I mean, generally, generally speaking, the, the, the convention when you're, when you're analysing the data um, is ironically most people will look out to a, to a 300 second timeline but yeah. as you say people really when they're looking at that although you've got a 300 second timeline and you've got the data in front of you people are looking up to that right what's the initial like you say first 100 milliseconds are obviously the sharpest guys yeah. but then really up to like 30 seconds and people on average are looking to turn euro dollar over by a 30 second timeline max anyway um, yeah. so really I think it's up to um, the desks to obviously make the most out of the personnel they've got there i.e. Your, your quant resource your, your your trading resource your risk managers that, that are on the ground and develop strategies where you know you warehouse some of that risk um, and do some like say longer term profiling um, especially if you, if you take a lot of the kind of retail curves you may on retail see an initial um, sharp move against you as everybody sort of yeah. bails it on the move. But knowing that most retail end up getting it wrong anyway, you know that's going to bounce back. So you could almost just warehouse that risk off, right? Yeah. And, 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 just and that's what a human trader does. I mean, that's why the Aussie stopped on January 3rd last year, because a bunch mm. of human traders went, okay, it's gone far enough. Thank you very much. Um, and it was kind of the same with the Sterling flash crash, you know, before that. You know, they, they went below 120 and went, well, this is silly now. Let's put a bid in. So, yeah. it, I mean, I guess it's like it's like sort of the uh, computers, you know, the, the uh, risk engines getting angst the way traders do. I can remember working with a guy years ago who was a manic depressive when it comes to making anyone a price. And he was asked for a price and he was just getting more and more down on himself. And all I remember him saying is, this bloke gives me, I am stuffed. <laughs> and the sales the sales desk went he takes you and he went oh what a stuffer <laughs> he used a few <laughs> other adjectives but it was like yeah it's kind of like yeah the the, the e-platforms are trying to do the same thing oh, i don't really want this risk whatever happens is going to be wrong it's um it's a strange one to me but i guess we'll work it out in the end um while we're talking data and obviously data is a big part of what you do in, in mm. your in your consultancy um everybody loves a benchmark Everybody needs a benchmark to a degree, I guess. Um, is there a problem with the sort of volatility of the data that we're getting from the FX committees in terms of actually analysing, you know, um, your, you know, one of your clients' business? Because, yeah, I mean, to give you an to give listeners an example, um, multi-dealer platforms in the latest survey from the JSC in the UK, ten and a half percent market share. That has been twenty-eight and thirty percent for the last four or five years and all of a sudden it's dropped by two thirds um i'm you know and, and at the same time electronic broking's nearly doubled i'm pretty sure given as you said at the start the overall e-ratio 
is the same. This is just a question of allocation. But what sort of challenges does the you know, data volatility throw up for you if you're trying to analyze a business? Yeah, exactly. So, so one of the first things um, we tend to talk to with with clients and what's most fundamental when people kind of get start getting excited and saying, right, where can you take some data from? Can we, you know, and start throwing in the buzzwords like your you, you MLs and AIs and all this kind of stuff? It's, it's kind of yeah. like let's, let's put the brakes on that. Where is your data located? I, you know, probably across a number of disparate systems, um, and you know, the more you go down the down the sort of sophistication tree, the the kind of worse that gets. Do you understand your data? So, a good example when you know I'm I'm, I'm looking at the, the the sort of sheet now for some of the data that, that, that the central banks put out, um, and. You know, there could probably be a little bit more clarity on exactly what they mean and what they're, they're driving at. Um, I don't know whether they give a bit more clarity to, to the participants when they're actually requesting that data. But certainly when you're looking at this data yourself, you're making some assumptions, right? Okay, so when we're talking about customer direct, I'm yeah. assuming that API flow, electronic broking, okay, let's assume that's ECNs. But are people understanding that, right? And are they, like you say, you know, you suddenly see a big drop like that in the multi-dealer platforms. Straight away, that just screams out as a, a, an anomaly. That that just doesn't look yeah. right. And at that yeah. point, you lose a little bit of faith and trust in the data. When that happens, you can't really build decisions on the back of that. So, you know, we talk to clients about understanding your data, but also is is your data trustworthy? Is it reliable? Because the minute that it's not, you can't base trading decisions off of that. Now. You know, when we're looking at this kind of data, it's it's good, um, it's useful, it's giving us kind of a state of the union, right, the, the yeah. health of the market. Um, there's other data out there that, that, that people can potentially use now that gives you a bit more of a granular detail and, and, and is potentially more useful. However, again, even that, when you're looking at some of this data that's being produced, either by central banks um, or third-party vendors, the data being absolutely reliable is kind of fundamental because that is the building block. That's the base. It's like getting the foundations wrong on your house. If you've yeah. got no foundations there, the house is going to fall down, right? And, and, and equally, with your trading strategies, if the data's wrong, it's kind of like if you've got the data wrong on a particular customer, um, and let's just say uh, it's completely inverted the true reflection of that client's flow um, in such a way that you actually see that client's flow as uber aggressive when actually it's uber soft. Uh, yeah. So what you're doing with that client's flow is you're just immediately hedging out of it in the market and kind of creating that domino effect and then also a self-fulfilling prophecy on future views of the client's flow. So, yeah, absolutely, the data has to kind of be trustworthy. And I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if when we see uh, the next April report come out, if they have yeah. revised uh, that NDP number. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, we have seen it before. I mean, I, I, I seem to recall about two years ago, maybe 18 months ago, there was uh, one report that said there's 100 yards a day going through voice brokers in spot, 
which was a great surprise to the one remaining voice broker that I know in the world. Um, and it turned out, yes, that was an anomaly as well. So I think, yeah, I think you're definitely right. It's a question of, you know, given, given, I guess, looking at the data, two reports back as being firmer. I guess the other thing I would say as well is it would someone who looks at these quite a lot and i know you do as well it would be great if the world's fx committees could actually sort of get their heads together and produce one template for all reports because it's very frustrating when you're looking at reports that are, you know that some are um calculated by sales desk some are collated by trading desk some are you know show different types of e-trading some don't show e-trading at all it's it's, it's quite difficult to break down the numbers isn't it on, on a, lot of, a lot of times with these things yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and actually, it's symptomatic of um, one one thing that used to be very frustrating on on the desk was suddenly with with this emergence of, of, of data and big data and more and more data that you're you're able to consume um, and providers are, are more than happy to give you. For example, a lot of the platforms. Are sending you a ton of data because they all want to now say, "Yeah, look, we've got great analytics." And basically, all you're ending up getting ten spreadsheets in completely different formats that you can't possibly hope to consume because of that. Um, yeah. And it's just an absolute nightmare. Data should make your job easier and save you time, not actually take more time out of your job so if you're sitting there as a risk manager on a desk and you're trying to interpret this data and you know every central bank's giving you a different cut of the data some e-trading some not some calling um certain channels different names it's the same thing um that you're getting with the platforms um yeah. and it's an issue like i say because they they end up not saving you time it ends up taking more time out of your day it's not at that point it's not useful it's not giving you the benefits it should do yeah rob i'm convinced that technology is there to employ a lot of people that actually <laughs> probably know what they're doing but in reality you're just shuffling sort of deck chairs on the titanic to a degree it's um yeah the whole idea i mean you look at I seem to recall the world was a lot simpler before data sometimes. You either made money or you didn't. But, um, yeah, we have to move with the times. Um, Rob, thanks very much for joining us on In the Thick of It. Very interesting. Um, thanks for having me. And hopefully we'll speak to you um, again soon. Um, to the listeners, uh, thank you very much for listening this week. Um, my thanks also to Jay Moore, who we spoke to earlier. Um, as a guest on this week's we'll be back next week with um, another guest and in the meantime thanks very much for listening